you have your Bibles, I want to open them to Revelation chapter 12. The text will also be on the wall behind us, if you just want to follow along. But I, I want to begin this morning uh, by reading a Christmas story to you. This story is from the Word of God, and it's found in Revelation chapter 12. It's titled, The Woman and the Dragon. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. And there is war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. So the great dragon was hurled down, that, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she'd be taken care of for a time times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Merry Christmas. Now, perhaps it's not the Christmas story you're used to hearing this time of year. There's no stable or manger. However, there are angels, and there is a child. Instead of cattle lowing, or the ox and land keeping time, we're introduced to a dragon, an unseen being who wages war against all those 
who keep God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Over these next three weeks leading up to Christmas, during this special and important time of Advent, we're going to be talking about this dragon as we conclude our year-long study in Ephesians. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And so if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn there. It's a very well-known text. Much has been said and written about these 10 verses. In fact, my friend Randy Patterson uh, just recently gifted me with a book by the Puritan author William Gurnall. The book is titled The Christian in Complete Armor. It was written in 1655. John Newton, uh, the man who wrote the song Amazing Grace, said this about the book. He said, if I might read only one book beside the Bible, it would be The Christian in Complete Armor. Now, the, the, the copy that Randy gave to me was an abridged version of it. But the original had three volumes, 261 chapters, 1,472 pages about these 10 verses. So there's much to say about these verses. And prior to this year-long study through the letter to the Ephesians, if I'd asked you uh, what this letter was about, you might not have known, but at least you probably knew that Ephesians contained these verses about the armor of God. And here's the thing. Now you know the context. If you've been following along, now you know the context of Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 20. You've known for years about putting on the armor of God, but have you known why Paul calls the church to put it on? Well, now you do. Now you know the context. And allow me to state the context as clearly as I can one last time for us. This letter is about unity. The first three chapters of the letter are theological. Paul writes about what the church should believe about unity. And the second three chapters of the letter are practical. Paul writes about how the church should behave in unity. And at the heart of this letter, Ephesians chapter 4 is one of the classic texts in the New Testament on Christian unity. So this letter is all about unity. Unity is the theme that runs throughout the entire letter, tying the entire thing together. And I want to emphasize again, because it's so important, that Paul's writing this letter to bring unity to the church in Ephesus, a church that consisted of Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles being just non-Jews. It would have been much easier for them to have just formed two separate groups, but the will of God is to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, Jesus Christ. 
That's Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10. And the very purpose of the coming of Christ is to bring the two groups together as one. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. So forming two separate groups, uh, a Jewish Christian church on this side of town and a Gentile Christian church on the other side of town is not an option for Paul. It's unity or bust. They're either going to figure out how to be the church together or they're going to take the sign down and forget it. Do something else with your Sunday mornings. Sleep in, go play golf, go downtown to the farmer's market, go take a nice walk over at the Arboretum because it's all about unity. That's what this letter is about. Ephesians chapter 1, unity is the will of God. We wonder, what's the will of God? We talk about what's the will of God. We study about what's the will of God for my life. Paul's very clear in Ephesians chapter 1, the will of God is unity. Ephesians chapter 2, unity is the purpose of the cross. It's the very purpose of the cross was to destroy, destroy walls of hostility for unity. Chapter 3 in Ephesians, unity is the prayer of Paul. Chapter 4, unity is the point of the church. Chapter 5, unity is the design of the home. So then, why do you think Paul calls the church in Ephesians 6 to put on the full armor of God? Because unity does not just happen. And opposition is certain. Because there is a dragon who's filled with fury and makes war against the people of God and is going to do everything in its power to cause division and bring disunity in the church. And if we were to do a study, the last 2,000 years, church history, I would say the dragon's done a pretty fair job. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, Paul writes, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There are five S words in these three verses, five words that begin with S that stood out to me um, as I studied this text that are important to understanding Paul's message to the church. 
Uh, and so I want to use those five words as, as markers uh, this morning as we look at this text together. The first word is the word strong. Strong. Verse 10, Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The strength that is needed for unity, the power necessary for unity is only found in the Lord. You cannot find that kind of strength needed for unity. You cannot find the kind of strength necessary for reconciliation in yourself. It's too much. You don't have it. You don't have the power reserve within yourself. It must come from outside of us. That kind of strength needed for unity, the kind of power necessary for reconciliation and unity is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the way that the New English Bible translates this verse. It says, finally then, find your strength in the Lord and in his mighty power. You may recall um, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul, in this opening prayer, he has this opening prayer that he prays for the church in Ephesus, and he prays this great prayer. And part of what he prays for the believers there is to know the immeasurably great power that is available to them in Jesus Christ. And this is literally how Paul describes this power in the second half of verse 19 in chapter 1. He says that the power is like the power of the power of his power. He just stumbles all over himself trying to describe the immeasurable greatness of this power that's located in Jesus Christ. English uh, translations have a really difficult time with that sentence because it's literally just four synonyms in a row in the Greek. It's just four synonyms for power that Paul uses to try to describe what's available for us only in Jesus Christ. It's as if Paul comes up with every synonym he can think of to describe the power, just piling words one on top of the other. You see, Paul desires for the church to know God's great life-giving power that's available to them in Christ. And the reason that we learn in the letter that he wants the believers to know about this power is because it's only with this power, it's only in this strength that's available to us in Christ Jesus that we can have unity. Only through the power of Christ. We can't do it on our own. It's not possible. We're we just got too much stuff. We got too many hang-ups and too much baggage. And we, can't, we can't do it by ourselves. We got to have the power and the strength that's available to us in the Lord, in the mighty God. 
And so that's, that's the first S, is this, is this strong. Be strong. You know, when I, uh, when I played college basketball, the, our coach, we, we'd work out in the gym, and, uh, you know, and back then, you're working out a lot. Um, and so the way he kind of measured so that we, for us to know that we were strong, one of the, one of the measuring sticks was um, if we could bench press our weight 10 times. That, that, if you could do that, that meant you were strong. And at the time, I weighed 225. And I only weigh 185 now. Um, I married a registered dietitian. I'm thankful, thankful. Um, but, uh, but at the time, I weighed 225, and so that's a, pretty good, that's a pretty good amount of weight to get up 10 times. But I remember the day I did it. I remember the day I got that 10 times and thought, I'm strong. Look, if I walked over here to the gym today and tried to get 225 up 10 times, I wouldn't get out of bed the next morning. I, 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 wouldn't, get them, I wouldn't get it one time, first of all. I don't have that in me. I don't have it in me anymore. And that's what, that's what Paul's saying. You don't, we don't have the strength for unity in us. It's only in the Lord. Second S. The second S is stand. Put on the full armor of God so that, I want you to see this, so that you all, plural, can take your plural stand. This mighty power found only in the Lord has one purpose. It enables us to stand together. You see, this is a stirring call to battle, and it's not a call just to individuals. Paul's like a general speaking to his troops as they prepare for battle. Paul's rallying the troops. And if you've always read this verse as if Paul's just talking to you individually to put on the armor of God, to fight your own little personal battles, that's okay. You just haven't known the context. Paul's instruction here is bigger than that. It's not just to individuals, but to the church to collectively put on God's armor and stand together as one person. Put on the full armor of God so you all can take your stand together. There's a fourfold emphasis here in these verses on the importance of our standing together. Verse 13, which just follows what we've read, Paul writes, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you all may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. The imagery here is for the church to be made up of many different kinds of people, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, standing together as one, linked arm in arm. Listen, what Paul's saying is that we must stand with one another in order to withstand the evil one. Let me repeat that. 
What Paul's saying here is that we must stand with one another in order to withstand the evil one. We must stand together. That's the second S. The third S is schemes. Depending on your translations, it might be strategies. We put on the full armor of God so that you all can take your stand together against the devil's schemes, against his strategies. John Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians, wrote that we tend to go to one of two extremes in our understanding of the devil. One, we either overemphasize the devil, or two, we underestimate the devil. And both extremes are unhealthy. The New Testament writers focus on the devil mainly, primarily, to make two points. First, to remind us that the devil has been defeated. The threat of danger still exists, but the evil one has been defeated. And then second, the other point that's primarily made is to warn us to not be caught by the devil's schemes, to not be duped, to not be deceived, to not be tricked by the schemes of the devil. And as we read in Revelation chapter 12, the devil is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. And so with this short amount of time that he has left, he's going to make war. Even though he's, he's been defeated, this little bit of time he has left, he's going to make war with those that John the Revelator said, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So we must be aware of the devil's schemes. And scheme number one, the primary strategy of the evil one. If we had Satan's playbook, it would read like this. Scheme number one, strategy number one, is to convince humanity that our struggle is against flesh and blood. And then scheme number two would read, see scheme number one. That's it. That's the playbook. It's not very big. You'd think we'd have the other team's playbook memorized by now. Remember, the imagery here is for the church to be made up of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, standing together as one person linked arm in arm. It's all about unity. Ah, but what if the devil was able to convince us that our enemy 
is the person with whom we're linked arm in arm. This brings us to our fourth S word, struggle. Paul writes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, our struggle is not with other humans, but going all the way back to Cain and Abel, the devil has been at work crouching at the door of our hearts, convincing us that our struggle is against flesh and blood. When will we learn that my brother is not my enemy? But as long as we're convinced that our struggles against flesh and blood, then we'll never have unity. You see, in Ephesus, the devil had convinced the Jews that their struggle was with the Gentiles. And the devil had convinced the Gentiles that their struggle was with the Jews. It's almost as like if I could hear him saying these things. Oh, we'd have unity around here if it wasn't for those irreligious Gentiles. And oh, we'd, we'd have unity around here if it wasn't for those holier-than-thou Jews. And today, the devil continues to convince us that our struggle is with flesh and blood. That our struggles with another person. The devil's convinced us that our struggles with our spouse. The devil has convinced us that our struggles with our brother. The devil has convinced us that our struggles with our friend. And the devil uses this convincing to cause division and to bring disunity in the church. Yet Paul writes these words that are just as relevant for us today as they were to the Ephesians. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And this brings us to our final S word, spiritual. Spiritual. Paul writes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I don't know about you, but some of my favorite movie scenes of all time are the speeches that are, are given prior to these epic battle scenes, just these inspirational, you know, motivating, make you want to just like run through the wall, right, kind of speeches. Um, a couple came to mind this week as I was studying 
perhaps you remember in the movie Braveheart, uh, and William Wallace, before the troops, you know, inspiring his troops to fight for freedom. It's a wonderful speech. Then in one of my favorite movies, Return of the King, uh, Aragorn, there at the, the black gate of Mordor, of all places, you know, motivating his troops, calling them to action, calling them to unite together the only way for them to enter this battle is to stand together as one. Great scenes. But can you imagine the scene if while these leaders were rallying the troops to engage in this epic battle for the ages, no one was even paying attention to them because instead they were turned toward each other, bickering and squabbling and fighting with one another. For far too long, the devil has convinced the church that our struggle is against flesh and blood. For far too long, the devil has convinced the church that our struggle is against the one with whom we should be standing with arm in arm. The battle, the struggle that the church has been called to here by Paul is an epic, end-of-time, spiritual battle. And we must stand with one another in order to withstand the evil one. Now, what we're going to learn next week when we get back into this text is that this spiritual battle requires a special kind of armor, spiritual armor. Not the kind of armor you'd expect to fight a flesh and blood battle. It's a spiritual battle. But we'll look at that next week. I want to conclude with this. Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago as a baby. He was born in a manger to a teenage mother, peasant father, and he came to fight a spiritual battle and to defeat the dragon. I have a video uh, that I'd like to share with you as we conclude this morning. Uh, and following the video, we'll stand together and sing.